0: This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where COVID-19 plays second fiddle to protests against police violence. You'll hear from a mayor, a minister, and two members of Congress, but you will not hear from the governor. Ron DeSantis has said nothing in public about the protests, not even the one outside the governor's mansion. But we finally got a tweet late Monday. The death toll from COVID-19 continues to rise. There have been at least 2,543 fatalities in Florida, the number of confirmed cases just short of 57,000. Democrats on Florida's congressional delegation are trying to convince Republicans Marco Rubio and Rick Scott to support the latest round of COVID stimulus. It's called the HEROES Act. It includes another round of $1,200 checks for individuals and extends additional unemployment benefits until the end of the year. Florida's budget is taking a hit because of the economic slowdown, and the governor's planning to use his line-item veto power to reduce overall spending. That's why the head of the Florida Developmental Disabilities Council is pleading with DeSantis not to wipe out the gains they made during the legislative session. You'll hear from Valerie Breen during the Sunrise interview. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and check in with two Florida men, one of whom will make you proud. And now, the top stories on Sunrise for Tuesday, June 2nd. As protests rage across the state over police brutality, the response from Governor Ron DeSantis, well, mostly silence. It wasn't until Monday afternoon that his office issued a statement, and it wasn't from him, quoted the press secretary. Then, shortly after 5 p.m., the governor issued a tweet saying, quote, Florida has zero tolerance for violence, rioting, and looting. George Floyd's murder was appalling, and Minnesota perpetrators need to be brought to justice, but this cannot be used as a pretext for violence in our communities. Now, some politicians are embracing the opportunity to deal with fundamental questions about race in America. Congressman Ted Deutch from Palm Beach County believes the killing of George Floyd was a tipping point.
1: I'd like to start just by offering condolences to George Floyd's family and to the countless families of black men and women who have been unfairly targeted and murdered, racially profiled, all uh, because of systemic racism that um, has plagued uh, too much of our criminal justice system and too much of our country for so long. And why would this be different after Ahmad Arbery and Breonna Taylor and Philando Castile and Botham Jean and Senator Bland and Tatiana Jefferson and Freddie Gray and Eric Garner, after all of these, why is it different? I, um, and there's just something that this time does feel different in the need for us to continue this conversation about how our nation can and must do better it is imperative, and um, the inequality that COVID-19 has has really magnified the disparities in healthcare, first among them, but obviously the disparities and uh, the disparities in housing and uh, economic opportunity and education. All of them require fighting for meaningful action in Congress, and I, I know we all commit to do that. To everyone who is marching. Um, We just need to make sure that those voices are heard, not just this week, but going forward in the halls of Congress and going forward into November and the election. um, Voting is the most powerful tool to create change.
0: In times of crisis, we count on our leaders to ease concerns and reassure people things will be okay. Congressman Debbie Wasserman Schultz of Broward County says the only thing the president has done is fan the flames.
2: Where is the president of the United States? using the, the platform that he has to heal the country and bring us together. That's the question that you should be asking. Why hasn't the president, instead of hiding in a bunker in the White House, taken the, 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 the national platform that he has, addressed the nation, and tried to make sure that we could put some context uh, to, to what is going on, acknowledge the hurt, and the hundreds of years of racial injustice and pain that exists. But instead, he tucks his tail between his legs, hides in a bunker, and allows Rome to burn around him. It is outrageous and unacceptable. And for sure, what needs to happen is people need to register and vote so that we can make sure we actually have a true leader who will make sure that we have someone empathetic and understanding and can begin the massive process of healing that is so vital to our
0: nation there have been several protests in the capital city over the past few days and tallahassee mayor john daly says they are welcome this after all is a town that was built on protest
3: ladies and gentlemen as the mayor of city of tallahassee i am here to tell you that our community is hurting we all watched with absolute horror what happened to george floyd in minneapolis And especially here in Tallahassee, we know the painful memories of the past that these events bring up, and we know the courage with which members of our community stood up for their rights and the rights of others. We also know that systematic racism is not just a thing of the past, but does persist today. Now as your mayor, I know I cannot single-handedly dismantle systematic racism, but I do know I do know that together, that we will continue to fight for a Tallahassee that lives up to the promises that we have been made to our residents and that we make each and every day. That everyone, everyone is treated with dignity, that everyone has the same opportunities for success, and that historic wrongs are righted. Tallahassee has a rich history. We stand up to protest the wrongs, and we fight for change. We saw this with the Tallahassee bus boycott, which we just celebrated the 64th anniversary. We've seen this with the lunch counter sit-ins. We've seen this with the leadership that took us through the civil rights. We see this time and time again, and folks, we saw that again this weekend as folks from across our community came out to peacefully protest police violence. Now, as your mayor personally, and I think I can speak for the city of Tallahassee, Leon County Commission, the police department, the sheriff's office, and all citizens that we unequivocally support the right to peacefully protest. And I continue to be proud at how our community makes its voice heard here in Tallahassee and beyond. And I join our community leaders here today, praying for peace in progress.
0: The Reverend R. B. Holmes is president of the Tallahassee chapter of the National Action Network. He believes what is happening now is the result of a triad of misery that highlights disparities between the races.
4: We have three serious storms rising in America and in our local communities. They are the corona pandemic, institutional racism, and poverty. Unfortunately, these diseases disproportionately and sadly impact poor, black, and brown people. Our young people and seniors are frustrated and angry because of police misconduct across the country, health care disparities, and the rising unemployment. We have come this morning to ask our community to conduct peaceful demonstrations. We cannot allow anger, pain, and frustration to turn into looting and rioting. We hear you loudly and clearly. We will join together to bring these problems to the forefront and work hard to change those persons and policies that are the problems and not the solutions. We are thankful to have our religious leaders and civic and political leaders here to raise our voices in prayer and partnership to work to resolve some of these issues.
0: Meanwhile, in Washington, the president was on a conference call telling governors they were too weak and should use more force to dominate the demonstrators. If you're struggling to make ends meet during the pandemic, you'll be glad to know the U.S. House has passed another COVID stimulus package. Congresswoman Debbie McCarcel Powell says it's called the HEROES Act.
5: The House of Representatives passed an additional stimulus package, and it is in honor of our heroes, all those frontline workers, nurses, doctors, essential workers that are coming out um, putting their life on the line to make sure that they're keeping our communities running and that they're safe and that they're saving lives, like we've seen all, all across America. It adds $75 billion to healthcare infrastructure so that we can add uh, and expand testing, make sure that we have enough contract tracing. As we see the reopening of our economy, we need to make sure that we can test right away. Uh, separate those that have the virus from those that do not, so that we can have a safe reopening. We have added that additional payment for those families um, that you saw in the past in the CARES Act. We have an an additional payment, direct payment for people that are making less than $75,000, $1,200 for those people, a $1,200 direct payment. We have added the unemployment and extended the unemployment benefit of $600 through January 2021, because we know that people are gonna need to be able to pay for their bills, to pay their rent, to get food for their families. We also made some fixes to the PPP program. So we extended the the timeline as well. Those funds are gonna run out for businesses to be able to spend them by June 31st. We've expanded that, that date to December 31st, 2020. So you can use those funds up to December. And it also gives a little flexibility on how they can spend those funds. We've been asked for that by a lot of the small businesses I've been talking to in our community. They need that flexibility. So that's the purpose of this bill.
0: There is, of course, a problem. Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman schultz says Republicans in the Senate are sitting on the bill.
2: So tackling the racial injustice that protesters demanded of us this weekend and likely will continue to demand of us, as they should, and fighting for a strong COVID-19 response are related conversations. We have to recognize that. The racial injustice that infects our community as deeply as the coronavirus does uh, is, uh, is, is intertwined and rears its head in so many different aspects of the impact on our communities of color and our larger society. And it's going to take guts to tackle these issues. And that's what we did last month when the House passed the HEROES Act and the most comprehensive and proactive coronavirus response yet. Two weeks later, and we sit here, and the Senate is still sitting on its hands. They leave nearly 40 million people jobless, Americans high and dry, while they pack unqualified judges into lifetime seats on our highest courts. We are literally sitting at the the center of, of three legs previously experienced separately in, in, our, in our U.S. history. We have near depression level unemployment of around 25%. We have a virus that is at the rate of infection near to Spanish influenza, thankfully not as deadly, but more than a hundred thousand Americans, likely much more uh, are are now dead and they are disproportionately elderly and disproportionately people of color. And now we have protests in the streets that, that harken back to 1968. Uh, Understandably so and all of those things happen separately in history. We have them all happening at the same time and so making sure that we have a robust response is a Moral question morally and financially we cannot wait to act So we are here calling on the Senate to pass the Heroes Act without delay to protect workers paychecks to put money in their pockets and establish the testing, tracing and treatment to get them back to work safely and sustainably. Our nation, as I said, is facing multiple crises right now and the Senate must find the courage uh, or the will to confront them. The HEROES Act starts us down a path that addresses the disproportionate health and financial impacts that we see from COVID-19 and that's just the start of a long conversation that we need to have, but it is a start.
0: Congresswoman McCarsell powell says the HEROES Act also tries to address racial disparities that were laid bare by the COVID crisis.
5: In Florida, African-Americans make up 16 percent of the population, but 23 percent of cases and 22 percent of deaths um, make up the African-American numbers from COVID. Latinos make up 26 percent of the population, but 43 percent of the cases. 45% 45% of black adults and 39% of latinos says that they've either skipped a meal or relied on charity or on government food programs such as SNAP since February compared to only 18% of white adults. We need to take action. We passed the Heroes Act 2 weeks ago that would provide significant funding for our local and state municipalities. They have asked us to support them. I know that I have bipartisan support in my area. We also included uh, another another stimulus check for those families that need it right now with the $1,200 per adult up to $5,600 per family of four to put money back in their pockets. It includes an additional uh, $600 of unemployment benefit through January 2021. Um, so we are here today more than anything to send a very strong message to the Senate, to our senators, Marco Rubio and Rick Scott, that if you care about your constituents that live here in the state of Florida, if you want to help our communities, we don't need words, we need action. You must pass the HEROES Act immediately, especially with what is happening today across Florida with those protests. I'm extremely concerned that groups are gathering outside um, and you've seen a lot of those groups are made up of the minority populations that I just referred to, who which is greatly impacted by this pandemic. I'm very concerned about the increase in numbers that we've been seeing in the past week here in the state of Florida. We need action and we need action from the Senate.
0: COVID-19 has already done a number on the state's tourism industry. Visit Florida, the official marketing agency, says the number of visitors decreased by more than 10% during the first quarter of the year. And you know, that doesn't even begin to tell the story. Two of the three months in the first quarter were before the coronavirus crisis. So the second quarter numbers are going to make a 10% reduction look pretty good by comparison. Next up on the Sunrise interview, we'll hear from Valerie Breen, Executive Director of the Florida Developmental Disabilities Council. Her group represents people who rely on government for day to day survival, and she's worried the budget crunch created by COVID 19 could wipe out everything they accomplished during the legislative session. You're listening to the Sunrise podcast on Florida politics, and we are much obliged. The Florida Hospital Association has released the Open Plan, designed to allow Florida's safe resumption of elective surgeries and procedures.
1: OPEN stands for O, Observe the COVID-19 Rate of Community Occurrence,
0: P, Prevent Transmission, E, Establish the Process to Restore Elective Surgeries and Procedures, and N, Network with All Healthcare Providers. You can read the OPEN plan today at fha.org. Welcome back to Sunrise. Our guest today is Valerie Breen with the Florida Developmental Disabilities Council. Her group had a very good legislative session. They secured a record amount of funding to reduce the number of people waiting for service, provide pay raises for people who care for disabled persons, and eliminate the deficit that's been hanging over the disabilities office for years. Then along came coronavirus and the economic shutdown. Governor DeSantis has to sign the new state budget by the end of the month, and he will be using his line item veto to try to save as much money as possible. So Breen has written to the governor asking him not to eliminate all the gains they made during the session of 2020.
6: We had four priorities from the council uh, that we wanted to move through the legislature this year under the Save the Eye budget. And the first one was supporting yearly increases in utilization that would reflect the the additional needs of individuals on the I budget, which is their significant additional needs. And what we were really pleased about is that $58 million uh was uh provided by the legislature to fund those significant additional needs and other costs that the agency was facing so uh that's the first time there was that commitment um The second was is that we wanted ten percent of the number of individuals on the wait list to be transitioned to off, and the legislature dedicated thirty million um to bringing people off the wait list, so we anticipate that's going to be about 1,000 to 1,500 people, so a little bit less than the 10%, but again, another commitment uh, from a funding standpoint. The third thing was is that we wanted to increase provider rates for all services that were defined under personal support, so that was really the heart of, from our perspective, what the um, home and community-based waiver really is set to do. And that is to provide those services that insurance companies can't that will help individuals remain uh, independent in their homes. And um, we were really pleased to see this is the first time that we have seen this, that $27 million was dedicated specific to increase um, rates for personal supports. We don't know exactly what that will translate to, but at least it was a dedicated amount of money. And then our last one was steering clear of for-profit managed care. We didn't want any aspect of the waiver to really be considered to move into a managed care. And that was really uh, what Senate Bill 82 did. Um, It advocated to prevent uh, that whole assessment process, that significant additional needs process where people were their their I-budget amounts and their algorithm amounts were definitely not enough to meet their needs, and so there was this huge gap. And uh, Senate Bill 82, which ended up being passed, prevented that type of assessment process from going into managed care. So that was, um, we felt, the biggest win, including, I think it was 241000000 million. I'd have to double-check that amount with you in the back of the bill to make up for all the deficits that, or the gaps that the APD was facing over the last two years. So for the council, that was a huge dream budget that we had never quite seen uh, the legislature's commitment to. And we really thanked Senator Galvano and Senator Bean for really, really pushing this through. I think the other thing that we saw... um, from the legislature was although there were additional intermediate care facility beds, so these were more Medicaid paid for beds for individuals with severe maladaptive behavioral needs with dual diagnosis. So these were individuals that really were not safe living in their homes and communities. Um, There was um, 72-bed allowance for a facility to be built or facilities to be built to accommodate those along with a rate increase. Although the council was uh, neutral on this issue, so to speak, we were tracking it very closely because what we did not want to see was that there would just be uh, an opening for as many beds as possible to be used for this population. We wanted to see it work effectively you know, with with a smaller group of, of beds. So those were, from a, say, the I-budget standpoint, um, the council was extremely pleased with what we would call our wins, you know, on um, the legislature's dedication to funding the program.
0: And now comes COVID. What's the fear?
6: Yeah, now comes COVID. Yeah. I think that the state did not... I think there was a lot of uh, unanticipated costs and pressure on the state and the revenues with not only the impact from a public health standpoint, but also from the business end. And so the revenues have been significantly impacted. And so with that, I know that the governor, who has done a lot of work and research and has uh, really approach this in a very prudent way. Um, we know that they're facing, you know, an impact on revenues and loss of dollars for the state, especially in this next legislative session. What we want to ensure, though, is that the commitment that's being made with our budget for our population is secure. That that will not be impacted in any way. Because uh, as I said in my letter to the governor. It's a matter of um, preserving those dollars because our people are counting on them to be able, once we're post-COVID, to be able to continue to have those supports.
0: The governor has not indicated when he will sign the budget or which programs could be reduced to make up for the cost of COVID-19. Your calendar of events starts at nine in the morning. That's when the Florida Supreme Court will hear two cases in which the state attorney general is trying to reinstate death sentences. Michael James Jackson and Bessman Okafer were originally sent to death row, but those sentences were set aside in 2017 after the U.S. Supreme Court ruling found Florida's death penalty sentencing system was unconstitutional. Now, earlier this year, the state Supreme Court changed the way it carries out the ruling, so the state is now trying to send them back to death row. The University of South Florida Board of Trustees meets in conference call at 9.30. They'll talk about a five-year capital improvement plan. The Florida Atlantic University Board of Trustees holds an online meeting at 10. They'll discuss the budget and get an update on the COVID-19 fiscal task force. The Florida Education Association is holding a virtual news conference at 1 this afternoon to release their final recommendations for reopening public schools. And Congressman Ross Spanner will host a roundtable discussion about the use of telemedicine during the COVID-19 pandemic. That's at 3.30 at the USF College of Medicine in Tampa. And finally, it's time for the continuing adventures of Florida Man, who sometimes makes you proud. But not this first guy. A Florida man has been charged with battery after he grabbed his sister's ponytail, pulled her onto the ground, and placed his knee on her neck. 51-year-old James Joseph Lamanaco Sebastian told police he was mad that his sister made spaghetti for her boyfriend and their mother, but didn't offer him any. Finally, a Florida teen whose family struggled with homelessness is now his school's valedictorian. Martin Folsom and his mother have lived in and out of homeless shelters since he was a child, but that did not stop him from graduating at the top of his class at the Philip Randolph Career Academy in Jacksonville. Folsom plans to attend Valdosta State in Georgia, and his goal is to work for the FBI. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again Monday as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.